Please stand me too. But but please stand with me out of reverence for the Lord as we as we consider our passage. Luke 22 verses 39 to 46. Luke 22 39 to 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. May he add its blessing to it. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, I am desperately conscious of my need for you. Lord, I cannot communicate the wonders and the glories of this passage. Lord, to my heart, let alone to the hearts of those who are gathered here, I pray that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see Christ. To see Christ in his deity, to see Christ in his humanity, to see Christ in his agony, and to see Christ in his victory. Lord, help us all to behold Christ with the eyes of faith, that he might be exalted in every heart, that we might walk in the victory that he has accomplished for us. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would help us. Lord, we, we like the disciples, are, are slow and dull of hearing, self-confident and ignorant of the dangers that surround us. Help us, I pray, Holy Spirit, to help us to see the, the spiritual danger that the enemy faces for us through temptation. And help us, Lord, to follow in Christ's example of faithful prayer, for you are the faithful God, and you hear the prayers of your saints through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please be seated. The scriptures are full of accounts of men and women who were tempted and fell. All the way back to the beginning and all the way through, the Bible presents before us a trail of carnage in sin's wake. Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden. Cain was tempted with anger towards Abel. Noah was tempted with the fruit of the vine. Abraham was tempted to protect himself by lying and putting his wife in danger. Lot was tempted with the fertile plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife was tempted to look back as the cities were destroyed. Moses was tempted to kill a man in anger and then also to strike the rock. David was tempted to commit adultery with Bathsheba and to pridefully conduct a census of the people. You get the picture. The story of the scriptures is one of temptation and fall. And of the carnage that comes as a result of sin. The story of humanity is one of temptation and fall. And of the carnage that comes from sin. We have the testimony of scripture. The testimony of temptation experienced by those in Scripture, and we have the testimony of temptation in our own lives. We can all speak of times that we have been tempted and have fallen into sin. We can all speak of the carnage that our sin has left in its wake. But the worst consequence, the worst consequence of your sin and my sin is the cross of Christ. Our temptation and fall led to his temptation and agony and death. 
alongside the, the testimony of temptation to fall in the Old Testament scriptures, however, is also the testimony of God's coming deliverance from sin. And in the New Testament scriptures, we see the testimony of, as, that, as that deliverance is accomplished and applied through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, alongside your testimony of temptation and fall is the testimony of your deliverance accomplished and applied through Jesus Christ. We have all been tempted, but no one has ever been tempted as Jesus was tempted. As he was tempted at the beginning of his ministry, and especially as he was tempted towards the end of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. But even that temptation did not compare with the temptation that was to come. The temptation that we're looking at this morning. The temptation that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where he was in agony to the point that he sweat drops of blood. With Luke 22 verses 39 to 46, we've entered into what is often described as the passion of Jesus Christ. The word passion comes from the Latin word patior or passus, which means to suffer. So then the passion of Jesus Christ is the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now we think of the suffering of Christ on the cross, but his suffering and his agony really started here in Gethsemane. As we consider this passage, we are standing on holy ground. Of course, whenever we undertake to study God's word, we're standing on holy ground. But this this passage presents one of those watershed moments in Scripture that is particularly profound. This passage provides us with an intimate look, an intimate insight into the, 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 the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as He prepared to go to the cross to face the Father's wrath as the sin-bearer for His people. We see what he suffered out of loving obedience to his heavenly father and out of loving service to you and to me. For your sins and for mine. And we focus a lot on the deity of Christ, and so we should. But, but perhaps in no other passage is the humanity of Jesus on such powerful display as he suffered for us. Again, at Luke 4, in the, in the beginning of his ministry, when he was tempted by the devil, Jesus withstood the enemy's temptation with the word of God. Jesus countered every demonic half-truth with the words, It is written. He responded to every one of Satan's quotes from Scripture taken out of context with the whole truth of Scripture in context. And in this, Jesus provides an example for us. In the temptations that we face, we also should face them with the Word of God. Preaching the Word of God to ourselves in the midst of that temptation. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Or as King David says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, this morning Jesus shows us another weapon in the fight against temptation. Prayer. Prayer. Prayer is mentioned five times in these seven verses. Jesus shows us to fight temptation by praying for it before we even enter it. And so here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we witness Jesus praying earnestly. We also need to pray earnestly in the face of temptation. If Jesus Christ, God incarnate, needed to pray earnestly for protection from temptation, how much more do we need to pray earnestly for protection from temptation? As we saw last week, Jesus warned the disciples that Satan wanted to, or demanded to, to have them and to sift them like wheat, especially Peter. And Jesus told Peter that he was interceding for him. But Peter said he was ready to go with Jesus to prison and to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, this rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
As I explained last week, Peter overestimated his, his, the strength of his enemy and he overestimated his own strength. Do you underestimate the strength of your enemy? Do you overestimate your own strength? Let me ask the question another way. How often do you pray for God's protection? How often do you pray that God would keep you from temptation? And how often do you pray for those things for for your family and for your church family? In Luke 11, verses 2 to 4, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And in that, Jesus was repeating the the teaching that he had given the disciples earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, which we see in in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Where Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in teaching his disciples, I did a whole sermon series on this. In teaching his disciples, including us, to pray in this way, Jesus is not giving them a rote prayer. Right, so you can like a robot, our Father in heaven, la, 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 la. He's not telling you to do that. He's he's telling you not to pray a verbatim prayer, but he's giving you a pattern for prayer. He's not telling you exactly what to pray. He's telling you how to pray. He's he's telling us the essential elements that we should include in prayer. And so he teaches us to address God in prayer as our Father in heaven. He is demonstrating intimacy, the intimacy and the transcendence of God. And then the prayer goes in to present six petitions. The first half, the first three, establishing the priority of praying for God and His glory. And in the second half, asking God to provide for our needs and for those the needs of those around us. So we are to pray seeking God's glory and God's kingdom and God's will. And then we are also to pray for our provision and for our, for our forgiveness and our protection. And again, just as as we think about the the words here, this is very intentional. Jesus says in verse 11 that we are to to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. It's a recognition that we need God to provide for our material needs daily. And it's not just food, but it's representative of of health and and all of of those physical material needs that, that we all have. And then in verse 12 begins and forgive us our debts. So the the implication here is that we don't just need daily bread, we also need daily forgiveness. And verse 13, and lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we need daily protection as well. And as we witness Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see several of the key elements from this prayer as he taught his disciples to pray. Jesus remains steadfast as he faces temptation. He he prays with dependence on his heavenly Father and submission to his will. But meanwhile, the disciples don't understand what's happening. And so Jesus exhorts them twice to pray that they will not enter into temptation. And even still, They fail to support Jesus as he faces this trial. So in this passage, we're going to see why Jesus was tempted and how he overcame temptation through prayer. So we see Jesus facing temptation with prayer, and we realize that we must face temptation with prayer. We see Jesus depending on God in prayer. We also must depend on God in prayer. We see Jesus submitting to God's will in prayer, and we also must submit to God's will in prayer. And we can do all of this in the confidence that God faithfully responds to faithful prayer. But again, the disciples, on the other hand, act faithlessly and without prayer. They, in this, they provide the contrast with Jesus. 
But nonetheless, we'll see that in his grace and his mercy, he is still faithful to them despite their faithlessness to him. I see four main points in this passage. Prayer to not enter temptation, verses 39 and 40. Prayer for God's will in verses 41 and 42. Prayer for God's comfort in verses 43 and 44. And prayer not to enter enter temptation, verses 45 and 46. The first point is so important that I'm going to repeat it. So first of all, verses 39 and 40. Prayer to not enter temptation. Time slows to a crawl as the suffering of Christ begins. The moment has come. The Lord's Supper is over. Jesus and the disciples cross the Kidron Valley and come to the Mount of Olives one more time before the cross. Luke tells us that they came to the place. The, the definite article says that there's, it's the place, the singular place. Evidently, this was the same place that, that Jesus had come throughout the preceding week. The disciples and Judas, as we'll see in the next passage, knew this place well. Jesus has prayed on the mountains at other key junctures in his ministry, but, but this prayer on the Mount of Olives is especially significant because, as I said, his, his suffering is now beginning. And it was from the Mount of Olives where Jesus will ascend to heaven, as you'll, you'll see in Acts chapter 1. And also in Zechariah 14.4, um, the Mount of Olives is identified as the site for his return. It's a very special place. Mark tells us that the place was the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I mentioned a couple of, of weeks ago that you can still visit this spot on the, the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. You can walk among the 900-year-old olive trees, and it, it makes you feel like you've been transported back in time to the night when these events took place. People have written little prayers on, on slips of paper and tucked them into the, the crevices of the wood in those trees. But any prayers that, that you or I could pray in Gethsemane aren't any more effectual than prayers you can pray right here. Because of the prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. It isn't the location of the prayer that matters, but the salvation of the prayer. Jesus instructs his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. As we discussed, Jesus personally knows the temptation of Satan. Luke 4 describes the temptation he experienced at the beginning of his ministry, and this passage describes the temptation he experiences here at the end of his ministry. When Satan couldn't defeat Jesus in Luke 4, Luke 4, 13 tells us that the devil departed until an opportune time. The opportune time is now. Once again, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Satan was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. That was his objective in the early part of Jesus' ministry, and it's his objective now at the later part of Jesus' ministry. Here in this, this his last and his most vicious temptation. Now, of course, Jesus want, sorry, of course, Satan wanted Jesus to die, but Satan did not want Jesus to die as a substitute for sinners. He's throwing everything that he can at Jesus to make to try to make that not happen. But notice that in the face of being tempted himself, Jesus is concerned, as always, for his disciples. He warns them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now this word that's translated here, temptation, can, can refer to, to, to temptation to sin, or to severe testing or trial. We need God to preserve us in the face of both. It's a prayer for for spiritual strength in the trials of life, and that includes the trials of being tempted towards sin. It's a prayer for, for spiritual direction around 
around traps and snares. And in this specific context, the, the danger to the disciples is what Jesus warned them about at the Last Supper. Again, that Satan wanted or demanded to have them to, to sift them like wheat. Peter had responded with self-confidence, but that self-confidence would melt away when the temptation actually came. It's easy to be self-confident when everything's easy. But your self-confidence is evident to the extent that you do not pray to avoid temptation. It says that that either you do not understand the the danger that that you or or those around you personally face to temptation, you either don't understand that, or you don't understand your reliance on God in the face of that temptation. We're all tempted by three powerful enemies. You live in one, one lives in you, and the other lives to destroy you. Speaking, of course, of the world and the flesh and the devil. The the world is the world system that sets itself up in opposition to God. It it comes from the morals and values around us that are in opposition to God and his will. It comes from the desire for the pleasures of life. And, and even though some of those desires are, are morally neutral, they can so easily distract you from wholehearted service to God. So which, in which areas does the world tempt you? Acceptance, maybe. Or ambition. Or comfort. Or entertainment. Or, or wealth. We're all warned in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so you and I need to pray for help so that we are consumed with love for Christ. So that the pleasures of the world lose their appeal. That's the world, the flesh. The flesh is your sinful nature. If you are in Christ, you have a new heart, but you still have to contend with the flesh and its desires. As Paul said in Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And then in Romans 8.13, he warned, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again in Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So where is it in your life that your flesh rears its ugly head? Anger? Lust? Fear? Pride? Greed? Laziness? Apathy? Selfishness? Drunkenness? Unforgiveness? Gossip? Depression, guilt, self-confidence. You need to recognize your personal struggle with the flesh and the ways that, that your family, your church family struggle with the flesh and, and pray specifically. It's, it's, maybe it's the one that's not on this list. Maybe it's several on this list. But we all need to be aware and we need to stand and pray for ourselves and for our loved ones, that they will overcome temptation. So we had the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil is the one who's behind it all. As Leland Riken says, for behind everything and everyone evil, there stands an even greater evil, the devil himself. Satan has temptations for every season and circumstance of life. He has temptations for old age and for youth for singleness and for marriage, for wealth and for want, for sickness and in health, for happiness, for sadness, and for everything in between. And so you need to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. First Peter 5, 8. So you need to consider, consciously consider ways that the, the world, that, that Satan uses the world and the flesh to tempt you and to pray deliberately, and regularly for help. You know, for, for some of us who are, are struggling with besetting sin, I need to ask the question, how often are you struggling that God would help you in that besetting sin? He uses these ways that to, to attack us, and he's been doing the same thing for thousands of years. 
And you might have these, these, these ways that are, are common in your life. You can see patterns of besetting sin, but you also need to be prepared for a sneak attack. You know, for things that, that you never expected when you woke up in the, in the morning, you would face. And some of us have experienced that in the last couple of days. Satan can blindside you in an area you've never even considered. So you need to go to God. Go to your Heavenly Father who is omnipotent and omniscient. He is all-seeing and He's all-powerful. And He knows those temptations that are coming, even though you have no idea. And so go to the one who can help you. Jesus knew the temptation that was coming in His own life, so He prayed. He knew the temptation that was coming in his disciples' lives. And so not only did he pray for them, but he told them to pray. He told them to pray that they would not fall into temptation. Even as he promised in verse 32, that as he prayed for them, that their faith would not fail. One of the, the means whereby their faith would not fail is through this prompting to pray. Jesus promises to pray. Verses 41 and 42 prayer for God's will. Now Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw away. They, they would still be within earshot in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew and Mark include the fact that Peter and James and John went with Jesus and that he told them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Matthew 26, 38. These are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His soul was very sorrowful even to death. May the Holy Spirit enable us all to, to grasp the agony that Christ experienced in that moment and in what was coming. Jesus did this not 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 just as the one who is truly God, but also as the one who is truly man. Now, Jesus Christ is truly God. We, we see this all over the scriptures. Hebrews 1.3, just, just one example. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe with the word of his power. Jesus Christ is, is God. He's God the Son. But he's also a human being. He is the Word of God in human flesh, John 1.14. Now, many people in our day tend to struggle with the concept of the, the deity of Christ. They, they think Jesus, Jesus was just a man. If he existed at all, he was just a man. But in the early church, a, a big part of the struggle was to, to understand how, with, with the biblical testimony of Jesus, how he could be a man at all. They, they looked at, at the testimony of Scripture and they struggled with his humanity. But, but the hypostatic union, that, that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, is all through the Scriptures. And this, this hypostatic union, the, the humanity and deity of Christ, I think is, is up there with, with the Trinity as one of the, the two greatest mysteries in all of eternity. It's something, again, that our, our finite minds can't comprehend, but, but we rely on the Holy Spirit to help us to, to see the, the testimony of Scripture and, by God's grace, to believe the testimony of Scripture. But in the early church, all, all kinds of heresies sprang up to try to, 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 in an attempt to explain this mystery of Jesus could be truly God and truly man, whether it's, it's Arianism or Docetism or Apollinarianism or Nestorianism. It's just a few. And, you can look those up on your own. But, but th these are all heresies that sprang up as an unbiblical approach to try to explain the Trinity. But finally, in the year 451, the, the Chalcedonian Creed was, was drafted to helpfully encapsulate the biblical testimony of the hypostatic union. Now, it would encourage you to, to, to sit down with yourself or with your family and to, to read it this afternoon. It's there on our church website. It begins, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men and confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a rational soul and one body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us in a manhood, in all things like unto us without sin. Again, and again, there's a lot of big words there that, that you really might need to have the, the creed in one hand and the dictionary in the other. But, but this is very important to understand and to confess that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And here in this passage, as I said earlier, we clearly see the humanity of Jesus Christ. We see as God and man, Jesus Christ prepares to suffer for the sins of his people. The notes in the Reformation Study Bible say, as, as the one who had taken upon himself a, a complete human nature, it was natural for Jesus to shrink from the horror of the cross. A horror magnified by his knowledge that in dying he'd be forsaken by God and experience the weight of divine anger on sin. Nevertheless, Jesus is determined to follow the will of the Father. So in the garden, Jesus went away a little further. Now away even from Peter and James and John to pray, watch and wonder as Jesus Christ prepared himself to be the sin bearer in conscious dependence and submission to his heavenly Father. While standing and, and looking up to heaven was the, the most common pro posture of prayer in that culture, Jesus went to his knees. He most likely fell to his knees and prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now we are very familiar with these words, but few have even begun to understand the gravity of what Jesus was praying here. But again, we, we approach this confident in, in the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and our hearts as we consider Christ. Jesus asks if the Father is willing to remove this cup from him. Now the cup is a, a common Old Testament, Old Testament metaphor for God's wrath. It's in several places in the Old Testament, but, but one key place. In Isaiah 51, 17, the Lord says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then a few verses later in verse 22, we read, thus says the Lord, the Lord, the God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. God's people will not have to drink the cup of God's wrath because Jesus is about to drink it for them. Jesus is about to become the substitute. He will bear the sins of his people. He will bear the Father's wrath for that sin. Now just think about how he addresses God in this. He says, Father. Jesus is showing us here the, the intimacy that, that he has with God the Father. He is God the Son incarnate. He, has been in, he is, is one with the Father and has been one with the Father for all eternity. In this we also see the intimacy that, that he has purchased for us. So again, in the, in the model prayer, we're told to pray our Father. Not just your Father, but our Father. Our Father in heaven. And he's also praying, not my will, but your will be done. That's the, the third petition from the prayer. Your will be done. So Jesus here is, is submitting himself to God the Father's will. He is in conscious submission to the Father's will and is asking that if possible... If it was possible somehow that there would be a different way of salvation, one where he does not have to bear the, the awful weight of the sin of all of his people, one where he, where he does not have to, to drink the, the cup of his father's wrath, one where he does not have to experience being forsaken by his heavenly father. He's saying, if possible, let this happen. Twice, in that prayer, he proclaims his submission to the Father's will. Jesus earnestly desires the removal of the cup. He desired the Father's will even more. There is one will in the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
are one God with one will. But Jesus Christ has a, a human will. And so even he's showing how his, his, in his human will, he is submissive to God's will. And we see an important lesson about prayer here, about our own prayer. That as Jesus showed us, it's, it's entirely appropriate to, to tell God your, your concerns, your desires, your hopes, and your fears. But to do it all in, in grounded in submission to God's will. Now I've heard people say that, that it's okay to be angry with God. God can take it. Well, I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. The posture is one of submission to God and His will. You can be open and you can be honest with God. In fact, you should be open and honest with God. But it's all grounded in not my will, but your will be done. And God didn't answer that prayer. God did not answer that prayer in the affirmative. This was the only time in all eternity that God the Father said no to God the Son. And it's a good thing. Because if he had said yes, if he had allowed the cup to pass from Jesus, there would be no way for anyone to be saved. The gospel is the only way of salvation, the only way that you and I could have new life in Christ was for Christ to drink the cup of wrath that you and I deserved. And he drank it down to the dregs for you and for me. The gospel is the only way. In the gospel, we, we see that, that the righteousness and the, the justice of God are upheld as, as he pours out his just wrath on his son in our place. Because if God does not punish sin, then God is not just and God is not God. So in the gospel, we see God's righteousness and justice, but we also see God's love and his grace and his mercy as he sent the son to die in your place and mine. Brothers and sisters, God hears our prayers because there was a time when he didn't hear Jesus' prayer. So pray. Pray because prayer has been purchased for you by the death of Jesus Christ. Now verses 43 and 44, prayer for God's strength. But the Father would answer the rest of Jesus' prayer. The Father did not remove the cup from Jesus, but he did help Jesus. He strengthened Jesus to carry the cup and to drink the cup. Now, of course, we, we don't have here recorded for us all that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, recorded in Scripture. But very likely he prayed for strength as well. But even if, it's, even if he didn't pray directly for that in Gethsemane, he prayed for it earlier in his previous prayers. It was read for us earlier in John 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer in the upper room immediately before Gethsemane, verses 1 to 5. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here in in certainly in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, in asking for the Father to glorify him, Jesus was asking the Father to strengthen him for what was coming. In his humanity, Jesus humbled himself to receive strength from a ministering angel. As a man, he was willing to receive the comfort uh, that the disciples were too weak to give him. As So the Father sent an angel to strengthen him, we're told. Now there's some debate here as to whether the angel alleviated his distress or strengthened him to face the coming ordeal. And I believe that the angel actually gave him strength to stand because in the next verse, Jesus is still in agony. Verse 44, 
Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. John MacArthur says you cannot help but be awestruck over Christ's agony in facing the Father's anger at the cross and stunned by the intensity of this greatest of all battles against temptation. We're told that his, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It, it, it's, it's common to sweat in the face of trauma. But I don't think this is a mere metaphor of profuse sweating. I think Luke is here actually describing a physiological response called hematidrosis, a rare but well-documented condition in where extreme anguish or physical pain, one's capillary blood vessels burst, dilate and burst, mixing sweat with blood. I think Jesus actually sweat blood. And he prayed even more earnestly. These prayers were heard. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So, so I think you, you are beginning to see the picture here, but, but what is it that Jesus is so afraid of? Why is Jesus in, in so much agony? Jesus wasn't afraid of dying. Many martyrs have gone bravely to their death. Jesus wasn't afraid of dying. Rather, it was, it was the, the kind of death that he would die. The death in which he would bear our sin, becoming sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and being forsaken by God, Matthew 27.46. Jesus knew what was coming. So these are the beginnings of Christ's sufferings for sin. The mental and the physical, but especially the spiritual. The agonies of Christ in carrying sin, your sin and mine. Listen to Matthew Hale. Christ stood under the imputation of all our sins. And though he was personally innocent, Yet judiciously, sorry, judicially, and by way of imputation, he was the greatest offender that ever was. As our Lord was pleased to be our representative in bearing our sins, and to stand in our stead, so all these affections and motions of his soul did bear the same conformity as if acted by us. As he put on the person of the sinner, so he put on the same sorrow, the same shame, the same trembling, under the apprehension of the wrath of his Father that we must have done. And as imputed sin drew with it the obligation to punishment, so it did by necessary consequences raise all those storms and compassions in the soul of Christ as it would have done in the person of a sinner. Sin only accepted. So Jesus Christ was in agony as he anticipated becoming the sin bearer, bearing the wrath of Almighty God. So then finally, again, the prayer to not enter temptation. This was the first point, and it's the last point. Again, it's, it's repetition for emphasis. When he had received strength, the strength he needed to endure, to walk the road to Calvary, he rose from prayer and found the disciples sleeping. Luke says that they were sleeping from sorrow. They, in this, provide a stark contrast to Jesus' instructions and Jesus' own actions. Remember, he had, he had specifically told Peter and James and John to stay and to watch, but they, along with the others, fell asleep. Their failure is one of grief. They, they were completely worn out, not just emotionally drained, but physically and spiritually drained. Maybe you can relate to this at a time when you have been in profound grief in your own life and, and you... Maybe you cried yourself to sleep. Absolutely exhausted by what you're walking through. Maybe it's the, the loss of a loved one. Or, or, a, or a physical trial or a spiritual trial. These disciples were about to lose their beloved Lord. 
And Jesus had warned them repeatedly to pray. Not just earlier in the garden, in Luke 18.1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. But here they have not prayed and they have lost heart. And then in Luke 21.36, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The context there is the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And a parallel with the destruction at the end of the age. But they were about to go something, through something even worse with the destruction of Jesus Christ. They failed the test. The disciples failed the test. So Jesus tells them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. Again, the, the repetition shows the importance of the warning. This is a command. Jesus is, in effect, saying that more temptations and more trials are going to come. So pray for protection. Pray for endurance. Thankfully, as Joel Green says, their failure was neither final nor fatal. And in this, the disciples provide a warning for us. Right? They teach us humility. If apostles can fail like this, then so can we. We need to remember, like they needed to remember, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41. And this way, the Christian who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If the disciples can fail, we can fail too. And so we need to learn from their bad example. As I mentioned in the introduction, this, this needs to be a daily prayer praying through the, the Lord's Prayer, the, the pattern prayer. Again, it's not just, just a rote prayer, but, but you need to pray through, consciously praying through each petition, taking the specific circumstances that, that you and, and those you know before the throne of God. And again, the sixth petition is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so you need to go into the day conscious of the dangers that might face you and conscious of your need for the Lord's protection, especially in the areas that you are most vulnerable. And again, there's besetting sins, but I think the area that you're really most vulnerable is, is there an, the area that you don't even know is a, is a struggle with sin. Again, Satan has temptations for every station and season of life. He has temptations that he has tailor-made specifically for you. Like he has done with Peter, he has demanded that he would have you and sift you like wheat. And it's not just for you. That's for your family. It's for your church family. And so you and I need to pray. Satan wants to destroy you. And conscious of that, it's, it's, it's unthinkable that you and I would consider starting the day without seeking help from the, the omnipotent and omniscient God. Make it your, your pattern. Make it your habit that, that as soon as you wake up in the morning, you roll out of bed, your knees hit the floor, and you begin to pray. Starting the day with prayer. And praying through the the, the this pattern prayer is, is a great way. You can you could spend, if you had time, you could spend hours praying just through these petitions. Again, it was, I would commend the, the sermon series that I, I did on this a few years ago to you. To, to maybe you need to listen to it. Maybe you've never heard it. Maybe as a refresher, you might want to hear it again. But you need to consciously go to God for everything that you need. And if there's something that a consciousness that you need God gives you beyond even the protection that you need. In, in maintaining fellowship with, with God through prayer like this, you, you, you will grow in your relationship with Him. This is not just a, an end unto itself. God has, has left us here 
in this dangerous place. But he's not left us alone. He's given us himself. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the, the privilege to come to him in prayer as adopted sons and daughters. And in praying, conscious of your needs before Almighty God, you grow in your consciousness of who God is and of who God is for you in Jesus Christ. As we close, just stop again and reflect that if, if even Christ did not face temptation without prayer, how much more did the apostles, how much more do all Christians need to do the same? So by God's grace, empty yourself of pride, empty yourself of self-confidence, of overestimation of your own strength and underestimation of the strength of your enemy, and go to God in prayer. Confident of the fact that, that God is inestimably above and beyond anything you could ever think or hope or imagine. And enjoy the blessings of intimacy with Him. All that's been purchased for you and for me in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Great and glorious God, we marvel at the gospel. Where no human mind could have ever thought of something so wondrous, so glorious. Then eternity passed. Within the Godhead, there would be a covenant to save a people. The Father would send the Son, that the Son would go willingly to take on human flesh and to live and to die. at the hands of sinners for the redemption of sinners. That he would be raised on the third day victorious over sin and death and hell. Sin and death and hell not for him but for us. The Holy Spirit would take all of these things and apply them to us and give us hearts that would repent and would believe the gospel and trust in Christ. Lord, help us as those who are in fellowship with the triune God to go conscious of the gospel, conscious of all that has been purchased for us in Christ, conscious that we are weak and needy and we need everything that you can give us. Help us, I pray, to know our weakness and to be conscious of the strength that you have given for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.